Well, let us continue in worship by opening God's word to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Quite an eventful week. A queen has died. And today we remember one of the most despicable acts of terrorism. And yet certain things remain the same. The word of God is true, and Christ is king. Things that will never change. So let us consider Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began explaining it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals uh, and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up into heaven. And behold, at the very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent, we were, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us, meaning Cornelius, how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And I began to speak. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they felt silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. In the time of the Protestant Reformation during the 16th century, there was much darkness all across the European world. This darkness was primarily a philosophical and religious one. The Reformers understood that this reality was about the fact, or because, or due to the fact, that during the course of the Middle Ages, the truth of the gospel of grace had been eclipsed, and it was out of view hidden behind the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. Martin Luther, being highly influenced by the theology of Augustine, saw that the Roman Catholic Church had moved away from grace and away from the gospel, the true gospel, and thus he confronted the religious authorities. On October 31st, 1517, he published his famous 95 Theses. The title of the document he published was Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. Now, what were the indulgences? As one writer said, and I quote, 
An indulgence was a certificate of pardon issued by the papacy by which the merits of the saints in heaven were transferred to a sinner, releasing him from temporal penalties of sin. The Pope could even extend these pardons to souls in purgatory, hastening their passage to heaven. How does that sound? Huh? Pretty good. And how did you get these certificates of pardon? Money. That's all you need. Money. All you had to do was to pay the church uh, for these certificates of pardon, and you got your pardon. The man in charge of selling these certificates was a Dominican friar named John Tetzel. And he even came up with a little rhyme to help and encourage people buy these certificates. It went like this. As soon as the coin in the money box rings, the soul from purgatory springs. How about that, huh? Good news. This, brothers and sisters, was darkness. Grace could hardly be found anywhere in the 16th century Europe. But the reformers, like Luther, Calvin, and others, had a hope. They had a hope, a hope that was forever engraved in what is known as the Reformation Wall in Geneva, Switzerland. On that wall, you can read the central motto of the reformers, which was captured in a little Latin phrase, post tenebras lux, which means after darkness, light. After darkness, light. This is why the reformers fought the good fight. Even in the face of much darkness, the reformers believed that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ would eventually dissipate all darkness. And as you know, the reformers stood upon five pillars, which we know as the five, what? Solas of the Reformation. Believe it or not, we find all five solas in our passage this morning, which goes to show that the essence of the Reformation was not a 16th century creation, but the outflow of apostolic teaching. So let us consider the first pillar of true reformation. If we want to see reformation in our world, in our culture, this is where we start. Post tenebras lux only happens as we stand upon the first principle, scripture alone. Scripture alone. Verse one. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received what? The word of God. Clearly, the apostles were not like the Athenians who would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something what? New. Something new. The Christian faith, brothers and sisters, exemplified best by the apostles, is not about craving new philosophies and narratives, but about rejoicing in ancient truth. The apostles had their mission very clear. It was all about spreading one thing only, the word of God. So when Jesus told them to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything he had commanded them, they understood this to be a reference to God's written revelation. And that's exactly what they gave the people, whether Jew or Gentile. When Peter encountered Cornelius, what did he give him? the word of God. And not only that, but if you think about it, this is how the news 
went around. The talk in many towns, the Bible says, was that the Gentiles also had received what? The word of God. You see, my friends, the apostles were the original reformers because they understood their calling to be first and foremost about faithfulness to a written revelation. And that has not changed. This is why I'm here speaking my head off before you, because we are faithful to a written revelation. They were not innovators. Neither were they known for being intellectual powerhouses, except maybe for Paul. But they were known for being faithful teachers of Scripture, the Word of God. And this was their sole purpose. They were propagating ancient biblical truth interpreted in light of Christ and his redemptive work. This is how the kingdom of God advances in the world and the light spreads. The word of God faithfully preached, taught, submitted to, and applied. So yes, the apostles were the original reformers because they were the ones holding on to this principle of scripture alone. We have nothing else to offer the world. What else do we offer the world? Do we have any other philosophy, brothers and sisters? Any other ideas? We have only one thing to offer the world, the word of God. And this is what the Gentiles received. This is what Cornelius received, the word of God, meaning the Gentiles, beginning with Cornelius and his family, they accepted the word spoken through Peter as the word of God. This is very similar to the language employed by the Apostle Paul later on in reference to the Thessalonians. And you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 2.13 if you would like. In his first letter written to them, listen to what Paul said. Paul said, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. In other words, when Peter went to Cornelius and preached the gospel to him in spoken form, Cornelius, along with his family, came to the understanding that there is a God in heaven who had revealed himself to us in human language. What an amazing reality. What an amazing truth. God has revealed himself to us in a way that we can understand. So the apostles were instrumental in the transmission of the word of God through their preaching and their teaching. And they stood not upon their own creativity, but upon the revelation from the Lord. Now, fast forward 1,500 years or so, and you come to the Protestant Reformation. And the reformers, finding their inspiration in the apostles themselves, sought one thing, one thing only, the resurgence of the word of God, both in the life of the church and in the life of the culture. That's all they wanted. This, by the way, if you're following the notes, was known as the formal principle of the Reformation. The formal principle of the Reformation. The Protestant Reformation had two principles undergirding it. The first of these principles was known as the formal principle, which was later captured in the Latin phrase sola scriptura, or scripture alone. And the reason why it came to be known as the formal principle was because in the mind of the reformers, just like the apostles, only the word of God can give form to both our beliefs, our thinking, and our deeds. There's only one authority over us, brothers and sisters, and that is the word of God. In other words, we should not submit our conscience 
to anything other than the final authority of the Word of God. There is nothing above us but the Word of God. So the Reformers fought to give the Word of God the primacy and the supremacy it must have above and beyond any form of human authority, whether religious or otherwise. For instance, did you know that John Calvin's vision for Reformation was not confined to the church only, but to the entire culture around him? Did you know that? This means Calvin wanted the authority of God's word to extend to all areas of life, not just the quote-unquote religious life. As one historian said, and I quote, Calvin did not simply want to reform the religious life of the Genevan church. He wanted the entire life of the city to be brought into conformity with God's will for human living. Calvin was more than a religious reformer. He was a moral social, and political reformer too. His great vision was not only to build up a true Christian church in Geneva, but also to make Geneva itself into a true Christian city, end quote. Was this accomplished? Well, consider what the great Scottish reformer John Knox said of the city of Geneva. John Knox pastored a congregation of English-speaking Protestant refugees in Geneva for three years during the time of Calvin. So he had firsthand exposure to the city. Writing a letter to a friend, John Knox said of Calvin's Geneva, the city, quote, I cannot cease to wish that it might please God to guide and conduct yourself to this place, Geneva where I neither fear nor I'm ashamed to say is the most perfect school of Christ that ever was on the earth since the days of the apostles, end quote. What an amazing thing to say about a city. That was not just a reference to the church, but to the whole city of Geneva. Knox called the city of Geneva the most perfect school of Christ. According to Knox, The entire city was an example of life lived to the glory of God under the authority of his word. Calvin's vision of seeing an entire city overwhelmingly under the authority and influence of Scripture was significantly fulfilled. Why did Calvin want that for the city of Geneva and not just for the church? Because this is what he saw in the life and ministry of the apostles. The word of God, brothers and sisters, has a transforming power because it is the word of God. So they preached the word in order that people might receive the word. And when you receive the word, you begin to be conformed to the word. The entire city of Samaria, remember? The entire city of Samaria saw revival under the faithful preaching of Philip. In the 16th century, the entire city of Geneva saw revival under the preaching of Calvin. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. Has the word of God changed? Feel free to say no. Please say no. Has its power diminished over the centuries? No. We have the same word. We have the same Christ. We have the same spirit. Do we want to see post-tenebrous lux? Do we want to see light after darkness? Yes. Then why haven't we? 
Let me give you a hint. Someone recently sent me a survey conducted by a Christian university not very long ago. The results were quite shocking. The survey focused on evangelical pastors from several denominations. Pastors. The results showed that a mere 37% of pastors within the evangelical world at large actually have a biblical worldview. We're talking about pastors. And that a loss of biblical beliefs is prevalent among pastors in all denominational groupings. Another 39% of evangelical pastors surveyed said there is no absolute moral truth. 39% of pastors in the evangelical world said that there is no moral absolute truth and that each individual must determine their own truth. This is coming from pulpits across the United States of America. Brothers and sisters, you know what that is? That is darkness. That is darkness. If this is indeed the case, which wouldn't surprise me at all, then guess what? We need a new reformation. We need a new reformation. Post-Tenebras looks is a conviction that can only be had as we together stand upon the truth of Scripture and seek to be transformed by it. For as Paul said to the Thessalonians, the Word of God is at work in you, believers. The Word of God is living and active, is it not? It is at work changing us, molding us, conforming us into the image of the, Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord. I can assure you that if the reformers did not hold to Scripture alone as the formal principle, the Reformation would not have happened ever. And we would still be in the darkness of a false and apostate religion. But they believed in the Word as the authority, as the revelation and the power of God, so they lived accordingly, and so did the apostles, and so should we. And that's where it begins, brothers and sisters. That's where it begins. The post-tenebrous looks after darkness light begins in the heart of the believer. Through his word and by the spirit, the Lord is dispelling the remaining darkness away and shining his light greater in greater and greater measures within us. In light of this, here are a few questions for your consideration as we think about the Word of God and what it meant for the apostles, what it meant for the reformers. Think about the time when the Lord saved you. I don't know how long ago that was. By giving you faith in Jesus Christ, however long ago that was. How are you seeing in your own life a greater conformity to God's will as revealed in His Word? What areas of your life can you point to in which you are seeing a greater influence of the Word of God? Let me ask you more specifically, how is your marriage being transformed by the Word? How is your parenting being strengthened by the Word? Here's a good one. How are your politics being purified by the Word? How are your finances being organized by the Word? How is your education being sanctified by the Word? How is your work being redefined 
by the Word. I ask these questions for a very specific reason. The truth is that post-tenebras looks is not just a Reformation concept. The truth of light after darkness is the process of sanctification in all of us. It's not just a Reformation concept. It's the process of sanctification in all of us. Luther, Calvin, Swingley, Melanchthon, Knox, etc. We're all, all of them, were undergoing their own world-led reformation within before they ever sought to reform anything without. It all begins by the word doing its work inside. So when Jesus prayed to the Father for his disciples, not only his first century disciples, but all who would come after them, the Lord asked in John 17, 17, what did he say there? One of the most well-known passages of Scripture. Very short, very powerful. Sanctify them in the truth. And then he said, your word is truth. Now the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be sanctified in the truth or in the word? Let me tell you at least three basic meanings. First, the prayer of the Lord means that we all need sanctification through the word. None of us are exempt from the need for sanctification. No one in this room, in this life, you will not reach a point in which you are beyond the need for sanctification. You can't and you won't outgrow this ever-present need. Second, to be sanctified in the word means there is only one source from which cleansing can come, which is why the apostles and why the reformers later on sought to speak the word of God to all. And third, and more practically speaking, to be sanctified in the word is to be cleansed, is to be cleansed from all thought, deed, attitude, or opinion that raises itself against the lordship of Jesus over our lives. And this, this is what happened to Cornelius. A Gentile has come to believe the word. His pagan darkness was being dispelled by biblical truth as Peter spoke to him. But here, of course, came the challenge. As we know, Humans have a way to minimize the grace and the riches of God's grace. So we come to verse 2, and we are introduced to the circumcision party. Who were they? Well, the, these were the ones who were still holding on to the idea that physical, the physical rite of circumcision was necessary for membership into the people of God. Faith was not enough. They were always fighting grace. The entire book of Galatians was written in a primary sense to deal with this particular heresy. And so these people, the circumcision party, they were mad at Peter because he was hanging out with Gentiles. And so they asked, Peter, why did you go hang out with Cornelius, an uncircumcised man? What's wrong with you, Peter? All of which takes us to the next part of the story where Peter explains why all of this is happening. Now, let's go back to the example of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. If Scripture alone was the formal principle, we are now being introduced to the material principle of the Reformation. Let me put it this way the Reformers were dealing with a twofold question. A twofold question. What is our source of authority 
to tell us how man can be reconciled with God. The first part of that question was answered by the formal principle, Scripture alone is our authority. The second part of the question had to do with the matter of salvation, the material principle. What does salvation look like? Here's how the Apostle Peter answered, 1,500 years before the Reformation. Here's the first part of the answer. We are saved by grace alone. We are saved by grace alone. Now, since much of the answer is Peter retelling the events of chapter 10, including his vision, I just will highlight a few verses And all of them have the purpose of explaining the essence of grace. First, consider with me verse 9. After Peter objected to the command to kill and eat unclean animals, the voice said, what did he say? What God has made clean, do not call uncommon. What God has made clean. Next, After the unclean Gentiles show up at the tanner's house looking for Peter, we read in verse 12, the Spirit, the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. God made them clean, and the Spirit made no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Interesting. Then in verse 15, Peter says, as I began to speak, The Holy Spirit fell on them. Who is the main character of the story? It's the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 17, Peter concludes, If God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us. That's that's it, my brothers and sisters. What did Peter believe about salvation? It is all of grace. It is all grace. Of grace. And what is grace? Grace is God's doing. It is God's work. God made them clean. The Spirit made no distinction. The Spirit fell on them, and God gave them the gift of salvation. That's a description of grace from beginning to end. Grace is embedded in the entire story of Cornelius. By grace alone, said Peter. Way before Martin Luther or John Calvin came on the scene, the apostles were already preaching salvation by grace alone. Only grace, God-given grace, can overcome the darkness of the heart and bring the light. But this is not the end of Peter's explanation of salvation. Consider what he says next. We're not only saved by grace alone, but we are also saved through faith alone. Verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them, Gentiles, as he gave to us, Jewish people, when what? When we did what? Believed. You see, faith alone. The question I want to briefly consider at this juncture is what was the gift given to the Gentiles? I believe the gift given to the Gentiles is the comprehensive gift of salvation, which comes as the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. Remember verse 14. The angel said to Cornelius, Peter will declare to you a message by which you will be what? 
saved, you and all your household. This means that the message itself, the gospel, is the power of God to save, as Paul says in Romans 1.16. Salvation is a blessing of the gospel, the message, and salvation involves faith and repentance, both of which are given by God in the gospel itself, as verse 18 makes very, very clear. Notice that the Gentiles repented not because they were special, but because God gave them repentance, the entirety of salvation, faith and repentance included, is a gift given to us by the Holy Spirit. Cornelius believed the message Peter preached, the gospel. There was a real faith. Cornelius came to trust, to rest upon that message along with his entire family. Now, don't miss the fact that the entire family did what? The entire family believed. The entire family believed. This is why they were baptized, according to chapter 10, verse 47. There was actual faith. All the members of the household were given the gift of faith and repentance. Now, I will develop this particular topic of household baptisms and faith later on in our study of the book of Acts. But the point is strongly made. These Gentiles believed a message. They trusted, they rested on that message. 1,500 years prior to the Protestant Reformation, Peter already was preaching salvation through faith alone. But faith in what? Faith in what? Well, this is our next point. We are saved in Christ alone. In Christ alone. Verse 17 as well. If then God gave them the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Herein lies the heart of the message, brothers and sisters. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes because in the gospel, Jesus himself is offered to sinners in the power of the Spirit. Salvation is not mainly about the benefits such as avoiding hell or going to heaven. Salvation is mainly about receiving the Lord Jesus. He is the gift he is the gift. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ in us. Salvation is union with God through Christ and by the Spirit. Communion with the triune God. Salvation is to be welcomed into the very presence of God himself. But how can this be given the fact that we are sinners? How can sinners like Cornelius be welcomed in God's holy presence? Well, in order for that to happen the sinner must find a way to be declared righteous by God himself. But how can we do that? If we are sinners by nature, how can we be declared righteous? Well, the answer is we cannot. Not in a million years. But Jesus can. Hear these words from the great reformer, John Calvin. He asks, and I quote, how is a person justified, declared righteous by faith? This takes place if disqualified from the righteousness of works, the sinner takes hold of Christ's righteousness through faith. 
and then appears in God's sight clothed in this righteousness, no longer counted as a sinner, but now seen as righteous. Therefore, we define justification, Calvin says, simply as the acceptance by which God embraces us into his favor as righteous people. To justify means this very sin, this very thing, the acquittal from guilt of an accused person as if his innocence had been established so that we who are not righteous in ourselves may be accounted righteous in Christ Jesus, end quote. That, my friends, is salvation. In Jesus, God himself came down to us so that we could be lifted up to God with full acceptance in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no hope. And this through faith in Christ alone. Therefore, the last point for our consideration this morning is nothing but the necessary conclusion. Nothing else can be added. Here's the, the final conclusion. We are saved, lastly, to the glory of God alone. Verse 18. Consider what happened. After the, the circumcision party, they heard what Peter said about Cornelius and his family. What happened? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they did what? They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now please do something with me. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2.13. This is in page 986 in the Blue Bibles, if that's what you're using. I know we have already considered this verse together, but I want you to follow along as I read it because I need to highlight something that we could easily miss. One particular point of doctrine that brings everything full circle for us this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul said, here's the Apostle Paul speaking to the Thessalonians. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Did you notice something rather odd about his wording in the verse? In case you didn't, let me point it out to you and make it as obvious as I can. Paul says very clearly in this verse, when you received the what? The word. Who? When you received the word, you accepted it as the word of God. You received it. You accepted it. It was you. It was your faith. That being the case, I have to ask, why in the world would Paul begin the verse by giving thanks to God for what they did? Isn't that interesting? Think about it. We also thank God constantly for the fact that you believed. If faith was our contribution, our autonomous response to God and the things that seals the deal, quote-unquote, then why thank God for it? 
the ultimate demonstration that salvation is to God's glory alone is that we glorify God by being thankful to him for everything. Paul knew that the Thessalonians believed in the word because God gifted them, what? The faith, the faith to believe. Cornelius believed for the exact same reason. Therefore, when the Jews heard this, they glorify God, meaning they immediately recognized that the salvation of Cornelius and his household was the work of God for which God must receive all the credit. You see, the apostles were reformed. They were. It is to the glory of God alone. Cornelius doesn't get any of the, the glory. The Thessalonians don't get any of the glory. We thank God for their faith. It is all a gift. 15 years, 1,500 years before the Reformation, Christians knew that salvation is and always will be to the glory of God alone. If you don't believe me, then ask yourself this one question. If you're resisting this, if you don't like the fact that your faith is the gift of God, if you think your faith is a contribution, let me ask you this. Is there any aspect of your salvation in Christ Jesus for which God does not deserve the praise and the glory and the honor and the gratitude? Is there any aspect of your salvation from beginning to end for which God doesn't deserve all the glory. Sadly, it seems as though some people would say, yes, he gets all the glory for my salvation, except, except when it comes to my faith and my repentance. That's all me. Really? Really? The Thessalonians would disagree, just like Cornelius would. We thank God constantly for this that we believed and received the word. Praise God for his power to save. I leave you with a warning, which I take from Peter's question at the end of verse 17. Notice that question that he asked. After he has declared, he has he said, it is, we're standing upon the scripture alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. He asked a warning question in verse 17, who was I that I could stand in God's way? How do we stand in God's way? Well, first of all, no one can thwart God's plans. We understand that, right? We cannot prevent God from accomplishing his purposes. So what does it mean to stand in God's way? It means to oppose him, to oppose him. How do we stand in God's way? Well, since there are five pillars, then we stand in God's way in five particular ways, all having to do with the five pillars. First, we stand in God's way when we are ashamed of his word. We stand in God's way when we are ashamed of his word. There's a lot of shame. People that seem to, seem to be ashamed of God's word. God saved Cornelius through his word. Later on, we will learn that Paul did not shrink from preaching the whole counsel of God to the Ephesian elders. He preached the whole counsel, all of it. 
Brothers and sisters, we do no one as servants when we conceal the authority, the power, and the wisdom of God's word. And we dare not stand in God's way, listen to this, by pretending that we have a higher morality than God. And the morality revealed in God's word. What does that mean? Well, it means very simple that if God's word says that homosexuality is a sin, according to the word, then let's say so, lovingly, but without shame. Second, we stand in God's way when we diminish the power of grace. Brothers and sisters, God's grace is not weak. It is sovereign. It is, after all, the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, the only Christianity that can and will survive the current madness in our world is a Christianity that is sustained by a God who is sovereign, whose grace accomplishes salvation, and whose word never returns to him empty. Nothing can be more discouraging than to think that God's grace is impotent in the face of human will, always waiting for sinners to give God permission to act and accomplish his saving purposes. That's not what we believe. We believe in a God so great, so strong, so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Third, we stand in God's way when we walk by sight, not by faith. We were saved by faith, but we are also sustained by faith in Christ Jesus, the King. So let me encourage you, by faith, don't let the current moral decay diminish your faith. Trust in the Lord always. Number four, we stand in God's way when we seek for other saviors. When we seek for other saviors. Salvation is in Christ alone, not in governments, not in presidents, not in political parties. We preach Christ alone. We dare not place our confidence elsewhere. Christ Jesus is our King. Christ Jesus is our Savior, and He will forever be the same, unmoved, unharmed, unchangeable. And His victory over His enemies will be brought to a final consummation. There will be light after darkness, because Jesus is King. He cannot lose. He will not lose. We have a King in heaven. Let us look for no other. And fifth and final, we stand in God's way when we forget the ultimate goal, namely the glory of God, the glory of God. At the end of time, it will become clear that all things, including your celebrations and your pains, your joys and your sorrows, all things were made and decreed to the glory of God alone. One day, everything about your life in this world will make sense because you will finally understand all things in light of his glory. But in the meantime, we continue to trust him until the end. Brothers and sisters, after this darkness, there will be light because Jesus is king. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for reminding us of these important truths, the pillars upon which 
so many of your faithful people in the past have stood. That we only have one source of authority and wisdom, and that is Scripture alone. That we are saved by grace alone as a gift. That we are saved through faith alone as the instrument. And that we are saved in Christ alone, the gift himself, the Lord Jesus, and all to the glory of God alone. So, Father, take these truths, plant them deep within us. And as we live life in this fallen world, help us to be mindful of these very truths so that we may not become discouraged. And as the apostles took the truth to an entire world, and as the reformers sought to reform their world with the scripture, with the truth, help us to be and do the same today. May we not become discouraged by the darkness around us, but help us to have the same hope, rooted in the same conviction, in the same fountain, that after this darkness, there will be light, and all because Jesus is alive forevermore. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.